Jesus, thanks for the great ways that we get to celebrate how you're changing not only our lives, but today we think of our buddy Josh. <laughs> Thank you for the grace you've extended to him. Thanks for the ways we see you in him, his servant heart, his sweet character. Uh, Father, the joy of his life, all these things show us parts of who you are. Thank you for letting us be part of his family. Father, thank you for the ways that you work in our midst, and uh, we would pray for next Saturday's summit that you would take the time that we would spend together and multiply it and use it and raise up people who are hungry to be a church that cares for each other and loves each other in the context in which we live. But Father, it wouldn't just be an academic exercise, although it's fun to learn. Father, I pray that it would be a bonding time for us a bonding time with your spirit, a bonding time with each other. But, Father, you would make it clearer and clearer to us what it means for us to be missionaries right here in this part of the world. Father, this morning as we come to your word, each of us brings distractions, things that burden our hearts, concerns or worries that we have about other things going on in our lives. And we all beg and pray and ask for your grace that we'd be able to enjoy this moment in your presence and pray that in spite of the one delivering the message that today you'd come and speak through your word to us. Uh, we are praying for open eyes to see, open ears to hear, and uh, we will thank you for answering our prayers and being with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with, the, with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord, and you enthusiastically respond. See, and I was raised Catholic, and uh, many of you had the same type of response when you would hear the scriptures read. Never seemed to be all that joyful, though. So I'm like to turn over a new leaf at Prism Church. We're excited about the about the word of God being written. So from now on, we're going to be much louder as a congregation than the person actually reading saying, this is the word of the Lord. So let's give it another run here. This is the word of the Lord. Be yeah, he is good, isn't he? Amen. How many of you are familiar with John McCain, the senator from Arizona? If you raise your hand. Yeah, it's fine. How many of you knew he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam? I read a story, a very lengthy account of his online of his experience of being a prisoner of war for five and a half years in Vietnam. He was shot down over Hanoi, broke his legs, his arms. He was in a body cast. He was tortured. 
for two and a half years, he was in solitary confinement. He was not allowed to see or talk or communicate with other fellow prisoners. He lived in a 10 by 10 room with a solid door and no windows. Two and a half years. He said this about solitary confinement. As far as the business of solitary confinement goes, the most important thing for survival is communication with someone, even if it's only a wave or a wink, a tap on the wall, or to have a guy put his thumb up. It makes all the difference. Can you imagine for two and a half years the greatest joy of your existence being a face encounter, face-to-face encounter with a friend and have them wink at you and that be like, okay, it would provide a measure of hope. He, he remarked as well that he was finding that prayer helped. He, I quote Senator McCain, it wasn't a question of asking for superhuman strength or for God to strike the North Vietnamese dead. It was asking for moral and physical courage, for guidance and wisdom to do the right thing. I asked for comfort when I was in pain, and sometimes I received relief. I was sustained in many times of trial. You say, what kind of wisdom would somebody need? Well, they were regularly torturing him, trying to get him to sign a statement that would denounce the United States of America, and he wouldn't do it. He remarked that in uh, March of 1971, the senior officers in the prison, and they had kind of figured out a system where they would tap Morse code on walls and communicate with each other through those, through those, kinds, through those means. And he had ended up in a prison with a group of other prisoners, and they started letting them be together. And once they got out of solitary and they could meet in, like, larger groups, uh, they were forbidden from doing church services. And it says that in March of 1971, they decided that they were going to have a showdown over church. And it was an important issue, he said. It was one, a good one, to fight the Vietnamese on. We held church, and the men conducting the service were taken out of the room immediately we began to sing hymns and loud voices and the star-spangled banner. I mean, these are guys who are American citizens experiencing persecution for their faith. And not just in a short term, an ongoing sort of difficulty and suffering. I have no capacity for understanding that. I am a whiny North American who doesn't think that in and out goes fast enough. <laughs> and so I think about what he endured, and I think back in church history to the Christians who have endured far worse. It's remarkable that the faith used to cost everything, and nowadays it doesn't cost a whole lot. On his release day, I was taken by Senator McCain's statement. He said, up to the time when he got to shake the hand of an American citizen in uniform, he said, up to that moment, I wouldn't allow myself more than a feeling of cautious hope. Can you imagine having to endure with no real sense that you were ever going to get away? I cannot. Therapists, psychologists will tell you that one of the things that keeps people from becoming hopeless is the sense that one day their suffering will end. I think all of us have had a, a measure of experience with that. It may be a difficult situation in life. Once you know something is going to come to an end, it does tend to pick up your spirits a bit. 
when you know it's Friday afternoon and you have a tough week, you've had a tough week, the weekend provides a measure of emotional relief. On those weeks when you know you have a vacation coming up, there is a sense of hope that comes, a, a joy, an encouragement that comes as a result of being sure that something is going to happen. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, is what the Proverbs say King Solomon knew. One way that Satan attacked the believers in the first century, when he would get them uh, in places of persecution, and one way I say that we would share this same experience of discouragement is that when we are cornered, we will often begin to question whether or not we really have a relationship with God. This type of isolation is really, really painful. The dark night of the soul that a Christian might experience where they wonder, is God real? Is my faith real? I have a friend who just emailed me this morning, and they're reading a book on the subject, and they've been going through such difficulty with regards to their physical health. And having to patiently wait for God to bring somebody to their life that they could love. And the, the mounting pressures and difficulties was causing my friend to begin to question whether or not God was real, whether or not, um, whether or not their faith was worth it, whether or not uh, they really even had a relationship with God. Sometimes in the midst of difficulty, one of the ways that our enemy, the devil, will chip away at our hearts is to get us to question whether or not we even know God, whether or not we are even secure in Christ. This was happening with the Thessalonian believers. We have just begun a series. It's going to extend for all together, all told three months, called The Thessalonians. And it's a story, really, of two letters written to a group of believers in the province, the Roman province of Macedonia. This particular city was a place where a church was planted, and then Paul, the apostle who led the team that went to the city, came back on various occasions and certainly wrote them letters to encourage them because they were oftentimes left alone, left to kind of figure some of this out with maybe one particular servant there to help them. And they faced all sorts of difficulties trying to figure out what this new faith was all about. Also trying to figure out how to live in a culture that was very hostile towards what they believed they were challenged to endure. In this section of his first letter to the Thessalonians, as we'll look at throughout the entirety of our study, Paul is trying to get them to focus on a gospel reality that they are secure in Christ. One of the things he wants to do, and one of the things that makes sense to all of us who faced hopeless situations or situations that were so difficult that we despaired of life is Paul wants them to remember that they are going to be able to endure because the future is certain because of what Jesus has already done for them. God, as opposed to our enemy, wants you and I to know that we will be rescued one day. We we should know. God desires that you would know that this very day you are safe in Christ, that you are not going to lose your salvation if you really have it. He wants you to know what it means to genuinely be sure that the Lord forbid you would actually pass away, that you are going to spend eternity with him. 
It is critical for our enjoyment of this life, our ability to endure this life, that this matter of our security in Christ be settled. It is a significant part of our vision as a church. Step one in our mission is to revive believers. And in our world, and we use this word a lot, in our context, there's a significant part of our population that used to go to church, that stopped going to church because they lost confidence in whether or not they were really secure in Christ. And it may not seem to evidence itself like you think. They got tired of the moral implications, and so people will say they fell away. But the reality is they didn't have the impetus to provide, uh, they didn't have the impetus to actually begin to really seek the Lord. They imagined that they were still trying to earn their salvation. And anybody who gets caught up in, I have to perform in order to succeed at this or in order to be secure in this, will get exhausted. People get exhausted and they quit. We believe, I believe with all of my heart, that one key to our mission is communicating grace, communicating the security of our relationship with God to people regardless of their denominational background because so many are so insecure about it. And I believe that that provides the driving force of us to continue to pursue God. And that's what we're going to talk about today, assurance and endurance and how the two things are linked. First, let me tell you a little bit more about the context. We're dealing with two areas of the Roman Empire. One, depending on how you pronounce it, Achaia, A-C-H-A-I-A, was a peninsula. Here's the map. If you look down, perhaps you're familiar with Greece, modern-day Greece. You've got Athens and Corinth. It's a, a Corinth that's on this peninsula south of the Macedonian province. All right, in the Macedonian province, you can actually see if you're familiar with the book of Acts or the New Testament in any way, these are cities, high, important cities in this Roman province, and they were centers of what was going on in Christianity. It was logical that Paul would go to cities. They were the place of cultural influence, but it's also where all the people were. And so he would go to these places and introduce them to the gospel. And in Achaia, you had Athens and Corinth. Macedonia is an even more important province. It was included in this northern region of Greece. And it's a, if you're wondering uh, from memory what sections of the country would be included in Macedonia now, modern-day Albania and Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. It was a very wealthy area. And this is what would be important for our study of, of this book or Paul's influence in this area. Shortly after the Romans incorporated Macedonia as a province, they built what was called the Via and Ignatia, sorry, tongue twister, via Ignatia. It was a paved road of 500 miles. And it ran from the Adriatic coast to the Aegean Sea. And it was without question, historians said, traveled by the Apostle Paul. It was the easiest way to get from point A to point B. And it played a significant role in the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel was introduced to Europe by way of Macedonia came from over east east, and it moved all the way through Macedonia and into Europe. Now, on his journeys, the second missionary journey, third missionary journey, is when Paul hit Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth. And this is, this is the journey we're a part of. 
is the gospel's forward movement. And what happens is anytime the gospel begins to make forward movement, as we don't talk about it often in Reformed churches, but there is a satanic, demonic push back the other direction. And what happens is, is that if you're not sensitive to it, if you're not prepared for it, it can be discouraging and cause you to give up. And the book of Acts is like littered with examples of Christians who quit along the way because they couldn't stand the persecution. They couldn't endure. So first thing I want to look at today is the relationship between assurance and endurance. And, and that would be to say assurance is going to present sure evidence. If you're going to say, I know I'm a Christian, there is going to be things that make it very clear that you are. There is a concern amongst some that, that the American evangelical Christian definition of Christianity is too simplistic. And, and they would try to complicate it by saying, you can't just say Jesus is my Savior. He has to be your Lord, too. And they use all sorts of language to make you think that in addition to trusting Christ and believing in Jesus and trusting him to have paid for your sins, that you have to do something else. And I want to clarify what we mean by assurance this morning for your sake, for our sake, for our mission's sake. In verses 4 through 6 of 1 Thessalonians 1, the Apostle Paul writes, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, keep in mind, he said, we know he has chosen you. Now you've got to ask the question, how? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. How do you know you're chosen? According to verse 5, by the fact that there is movement and direction of the Holy Spirit in your life and deep conviction. Verse 6 goes on to say, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us in the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, and of the Lord. And so these are signs that somebody has genuinely entered into relationship with God. There are signs. You can be assured of your relationship with God, your status as his daughter or his son, not by your perfection, but by the movement of the Holy Spirit and by the conviction of the Spirit in your life when you fail. I think of it like this, and I think it's really important to distinguish what we're talking about in this regard is that we're talking about a relationship with Jesus. If a person were to say to me, I have no like ongoing relationship with Jesus, I have no interaction with him, my life isn't centered around his thoughts, and he doesn't really provide anything for me, but I assent to great theology. I was raised in a church that taught doctrine from this perspective, I intellectually concur, I recognize and culturally identify with Jesus. And if that's what they think we mean by you are saved by faith, that's not what we mean. Faith is not simply believing in facts, figures, theology, doctrine. We're talking about faith being the means to something, a relationship with God. We are saved because of our relationship with Jesus, because our closeness to the Spirit of God that lives in us, because of his cleansing of us. Faith is just the means to get us into this relationship with God. In the absence of a relationship with God, well, the, the Apostle James wrote in James 
You believe there's God, one God? Well, good. Demons believe that. So it isn't a matter of you being perfect. It isn't a matter of you stacking up a bunch of good things or checking off the list of evangelical to-dos so that you can feel like you're really a Christian. It isn't even a matter of being one of these obsessive, compulsive Christians that can't have any fun because they're scared that somehow or another their absence of pursuing godliness will indicate that they don't really know Jesus. And so (laughs) don't be that person. You're awful to hang out with if you're that person. Jesus said he wants you to have rest, enjoy some, and give some of us rest along the way. Jesus wants you to be at rest. He didn't say you can have rest one day. He said, come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. He wants you and I to be at rest. We are at rest in relationship with him. So whether you're struggling with a particular sin, an ongoing sin, and that is all of us, friend, including your pastor, Because once you get past that one that you think, if I could just overcome this, I'd be so close to God, there's going to be another one. God's just graciously giving you them one at a time. If he did all of them at once, we'd be like, forget this noise, eat, drink, because tomorrow I'm just going to die. Because it'd be awful. The indicators of whether or not we're genuinely believers are, does the Spirit of God live in us? And, And to this, I would say, you have to refer to other portions of Scripture. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is a passage of Scripture you absolutely have to memorize if you're going to be somebody who lives in the assurance of your salvation, something that glorifies God, you saying, yes, I'm saved, not because I'm good, but because Jesus is good and because he loves me a lot, he forgave me, he's credited me with his righteousness, his Holy Spirit lives in me, I am secure because of Christ. It glorifies Jesus when you can say that. It's not self-aggrandizing. It glorifies him. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 reads like this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Understand the three components of this. The Holy Spirit's presence, you are sealed. Once you genuinely become a believer, once you are in relationship with God, you are sealed. This is the equivalent of when a Roman official would take, the, would take wax, place it over a document, and put the Roman seal on something that couldn't be broken unless it was going to be done at the penalty of death. A seal was critical. It was a legally binding thing. You, by the power of the presence of God's Spirit in your life, you have been sealed for all eternity. And then you've been given his power, and it's a power that is by his permanence. He is not going anywhere. He is present with you. Having your big brother with you all the time is really reassuring. The Holy Spirit's presence is there, and it's in his presence that you can access his power and his confidence and his strength. The Holy Spirit has promised your rescue is guaranteed. It is a deposit guaranteeing your eternal destiny. You see, if you're going to have assurance, you've got to know what that assurance is rooted in, and it is rooted in his presence in your life. It is rooted in his work to redeem you. Jesus died so you wouldn't have to die for your sins. 
You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to beat your body and, and mark it all up like some aesthetic, a person that doesn't really think they, they could beat themselves to death. And I messed that one up pretty badly. You got the idea. <laughs> I'm really biting on the tongue twisters this morning. It's been not a good day for that. I, I just tell you, there are people that think it's spiritual to kind of torture yourself. And that is not. It's another form of self-righteousness. It's a way to say, I did this. I stopped this behavior, and now I can feel good about who I am. That's the essence of legalism, the legalism that has turned so many away from the church. We don't have a biblical methodology, so we create a list of things that we can accomplish. And once we do those, then we feel good and can finally rest. I've started having quiet times. I've stopped socially drinking. I don't dance like the pagans anymore. And so we have this like bizarro list of things that we can accomplish that have nothing to do with godliness, have nothing to do with holiness, but they somehow or another culturally make people feel like they're actually making progress as a Christian. And at that moment, they go, oh, yeah, I'm being really good about my quiet time, so I guess I'm close to Jesus, and I can finally be at rest. This is not assurance. Assurance is simply that we have been secured in our relationship with God for eternity because of what Christ has already done. Now, the evidence of that is that you and I care that in the context of a relationship with God, we actually really want to do what pleases him. And I would say to you and I, at those moments in our Christian experience where we don't really want to please God, we shouldn't be concerned about our eternal soul. We should be concerned about the discipline that he might meet out in our lives, Hebrews 12. We might be concerned about the fact that we really don't love God and it should cause us sorrow, godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. And if there's a complete absence of any sense of conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we're at our worst, if there's no sense of even, at the very least, as one of my professors, R.C. Sproul, used to say, has your disposition changed even one iota? He used to say it just like that too. Has your disposition changed one iota? Do you even care that you're failing? See, these are signs of conversion, and those are things you can build on. You can say, Jesus, I'm failing. I repent before you. Rescue me. And this is the evidence of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In the absence of that, I would say to somebody, I don't know if you're a Christian. I think it's fair to say that those things don't exist in your life that you need to reevaluate whether or not you're a country Christian. You know what I mean by that? These are the country stars like Toby Keith. I'm not calling out country stars by name. But they love to call themselves Christians. I'm a Christian. But there's zero evidence that they have any love for or relationship with God. They have culturally identified with a conservative sort of um, creation of what Christianity might be. The nationalism masked in Christianity. That, that might be what they identify as. I would say that's not what Jesus is about. He's about you and I in relationship with him. And assurance of our salvation does present certain evidence. And that's it. Assurance, once we have it, though, this is the encouraging part for you and I. Assurance produces a strong endurance. The Lord's message rang out for you, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. It rang out for you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. 
Think about that. This is a, a small church planted by Paul, and within the just several years of its starting, all throughout this region, people began to hear about these Thessalonian believers, their ability to persevere, their ability to endure, their impact on their city. Now, this is not an Internet age where I post a picture of Josh Bapp's, Josh's baptism on Facebook before the end of our worship service. It took a really long time for information to get from one part of the Roman Empire to another. So the idea that down in Athens and Corinth, they were thinking, wow, those Thessalonians are really kicking it. They're, I hear they're doing really well. They must have been seeing the power of God's presence in amazing ways. These were people that were enduring persecution, a persecution that was not just their own faith, it was their leaders, Paul and Timothy and Silas. They were being abused publicly and maligned, and these guys were associated with these people that they didn't know really all that well, but they'd seen the transforming power of the gospel in their lives, and so they knew that Jesus was real, and they said, I'll, I'll follow this Christ. There were fruits in verse 6b, which is not up in front of you right now. It says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. They welcomed the message of Christ in the face of amazing persecution. They were faced with the challenge of knowing they were going to be beat up socially, physically, for professing faith in Christ, and they welcomed the message anyway. And it's because that message contained an assurance that their eternal destiny was certain. Look what it says here in the final verses 9 and 10. They tell us, the people who are in these two provinces celebrating the conversion of the Thessalonians, they tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, I think it's important to camp out here on verse 10 for a second and say, there's a coming wrath, and we need to be rescued from it. And that may not sell well in our world, but that's going to be part of what we are ostracized for professing, that human beings deserve to be punished for their sins. That includes us. Jesus rescues us from this coming wrath. This eternal judgment that will happen one day, the scriptures say so, this eternal judgment, the only thing that keeps anyone, the Thessalonians, you or me, from not being completely frightened by the prospects of such a day is that Jesus has already rescued us from this coming wrath. We are already, quote-unquote, saved. We are already his children. Judgment day for us is not going to be scary. If you're a child of God, it's going to be a celebration of all that Christ has already done for you. It's going to be a moment where you fall and I fall on our face and celebrate the grace and love and holiness of God. We see this endurance producing fruit, fruit in lives, fruit in ministry, and all these things reaffirm the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. This encourages us to endure. Of course, enduring and experiencing the sufferings of Christ means appreciating, at least in part, what Jesus has done for us. 
while the Thessalonians willingly walked into persecution, it's nothing compared to what Jesus did. Jesus left paradise and set the ultimate example for us. Out of love for us, he entered into a world that was less than perfect, to say the least. Walked in a human frame that was less than eternal in its glory at the time. And suffered a death that he didn't deserve. And he did it willingly. He walked right into it. That is his desire He knew, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, verse 2, scorned its shame. He he set the reality of his hope, the certainty of his eternal destiny in front of him, and it enabled him to walk the painful road that was in front of him. You and I, our assurance of salvation produces within us a strong endurance an ability to say, I will stand and I will humbly align myself with what the scriptures teach. I will humbly align myself with the reality of the gospel that Jesus is the only means for people to know rest in the Father's presence. And if that makes people offended by me, if that makes people angry with me, I'm sorry for that. But because I know my entire eternal life is bound up in this reality, what can I do? What else could I do but to stand with Jesus and say, he has rescued me from the coming wrath. Romans 15, 1 through 4 is a wonderful passage of scripture. Paul writes to the Romans, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. I love that verse. Through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have Last week has been, the last week has been particularly sad at moments for me. Those of you who are up on current events, uh, perhaps you've felt the same sort of sorrow. Last week we mentioned the, the untimely death, the suicide of, of Matthew Warren, Rick and Kay Warren's son. But to me, even more tragic is the concurrent stories of two young women, one in Canada and one in California, who both took their lives because they were drunk, passed out, and were sexually abused by young men who took pictures of the event and put them on Facebook. And the shame and the embarrassment and the ridicule and the cruelty of their teen friends and enemies pushed both of these girls within a week of each other to say, I can't take it anymore. And they took their lives. And as I read these stories, I thought, what would happen if that were my daughter? You know, you, you've maybe been there like I have. You, you made a mistake. You make a choice to drink too much. You pass out. And unbeknownst to you, somebody violates you. And then your life is flipped upside down. You wanted to, if, if you read these things, I know I did. I, I, I wished I could have just been there to plead with these girls. 
you're, there's, there is hope. You, you don't give up. These guys are scum buckets. We, we'll, make, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure justice is done. You're loved by God. But they didn't have in that moment anyway the hope to know that things are going to get better. They couldn't endure that pain and suffering. This desire that you and I have, we instinctively, maybe parentally at some level, you, you find yourself that instinct, even if you don't have kids yet, kicking in where you could go to these girls and say, don't do it. You're so valuable. You, they have messed with you. This is not you. You're wonderful. You're loved. This is the same passion your father has for you. In those moments when you feel like jumping ship and you say, the suffering, the confusion, the doubt, the pain, these things are overwhelming. Just know that if you have the capacity to plead for and long for a voice to speak into the hopeless's heart and say, don't do this, imagine how much a holy God can do for you. Imagine how much more valuable his love is for you, his passion that you would endure. And once again, we're back to the gospel. That as you and I comprehend the realities of the gospel, we're going to be able to endure. As those gospel realities are applied to our lives, the truths of the scriptures, as it says in Romans 15, 4, the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide. Through these things, we get hope. This is why we celebrate communion every week at prison. It isn't because we're required to by the scriptures or tradition necessarily. It's because we believe that in this moment, it's not just coming up here and going through the ritual of taking bread and dipping it in the fruit of the vine. It's because we can once again reflect on what Jesus has done for us to remind us at the very basic level of our experience, we are loved. Don't give up. Endure. You are more liked and more loved than you can conceivably know. It's so that you can see in this sacrament the passion that the Father has for you. And that's my prayer for us today. As we celebrate communion together, we would know that we are dearly loved and we would have the assurance to know that Christ's death on the cross sufficiently provided so that we could be secure. Let us pray. Father, today, more than other days in the past, we're, keen, we're keenly aware that, that suffering can lead us to despair and we think of families that have suffered because their loved ones gave up. We think of believers that are suffering around the world in ways that are huge compared to what we go through. All of us share one thing in common. We need the assurance that you love us, that you will endure by your presence in our lives. And Lord, that uh, in the end, you are going to most certainly rescue us from the coming wrath. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it.